Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I am excited about being in the book of Daniel. I hope you are. Uh, Wow, it's going to be great. I'm speaking this morning, and then Josh is taking it from there. He's going to He's going to take us the rest of the way through the book. We're, we're going to do uh, the, the 22nd of December. We're going to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the Christmas story. But other than that, uh, the month of December is devoted to the book of Daniel. And, and uh, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. God's kingdom is everlasting and supersedes them all. We're on a three-year journey through the Bible together, and uh, it's uh, sometimes a challenge to cover uh, to cover the Bible in three years of uh, uh, weekly uh, Bible exposition time. And this this time in the service that we devote to expounding Scripture is uh, is not always a, an easy time for me. It's uh, not easy to. Uh, sometimes to do what uh, we're called on to do when it comes uh, to preaching and teaching the word. And, of course, there's lots of, uh, lots of challenges. Uh, how many of you know that uh, many Bible passages get uh, interpreted in, and applied in ways that are not in keeping with the intent of God in giving us the Bible and therefore, a lot of Bible teaching, preaching, sharing, studying, uh, applying uh, doesn't really come with a whole lot of, of, of real authority simply because it's out of line with the intention of the text. Do you know that? No, that's true. You can watch for it. And, uh, and it's, uh, I guess, you know, it's partly because... Uh, the Bible is a big book, and there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of content in there. How many of you have a paper, paper version of the of the Bible with you this morning, like the old-fashioned way? Everybody over forty, hold up your Bible. <laughs> How many of you are really enjoying the new technology and are able to access uh, God's Word from your personal electronic device? How many of you? Yeah, a number of you, see? So there you go. It's a, it's a whole new day. Isn't it great? Um, the most important rule of Bible interpretation is content. Or context, sorry. Con- yeah, content, obviously. Context. Uh, the context of the content. And uh, the Bible's a big book, and it's 66 books, right? 66 books in the whole Bible, each one a special part. You know that little rhyme? Maybe. Um, The difficulty increases if we're not reading and praying our way through. It's a formidable task, you know, to uh, for uh, someone, whether it be myself or, or someone else, to uh, get up and speak on a on a, uh, a Lord's Day morning and expound a passage of Scripture. Um, 
um, there's a lot of ideas out there as to what that should look like and what that role is. What's, what is my role this morning and what is your role? Um, I hope you know that you have an important part to play. That we're not called to be passive listeners. That we are uh, called to engage, and to think, to pray, to, here's a word, to discern. Do you know that you have a responsibility to discern? I, I know that in a lot of places, in a lot of contexts, the way it goes, is the way people see this, this time now is, is that I am going to get up here and tell you how it is. Some people believe that. But that's not how it is. Is it? No. All of us have responsibility. And I hope that as we make our way through Scripture, I hope that we'll be able to um, encourage and admonish one another to be reading and, pray, and praying our way through, because otherwise we're, uh, we're going to have a difficult time. And we don't want to make we don't want to make mistakes when it comes to understanding and applying God's word. We really, really want to get it right, don't we? I hope you do. Um, co so context is really, really important. And so, for co to appreciate the, the the rule of context in biblical interpretation, it means that you've got to read broadly. It means you need you need to read the whole Bible. And uh, you know, uh, last week when Josh got up to preach on the book of Ezekiel, he had us all stand and read from uh, together where. Where? Psalm 23. And some of you might have been thinking, well, what are we doing in Psalm 23? We're in the book of Ezekiel. And the answer to that is context. The, the Bible, in that sense, is its own interpreter. The Bible interprets the Bible. And the best uh, guard against misinterpreting or misapplying the Bible is to allow the Bible to interpret itself, which requires that we read broadly as well as deeply. And so we're looking at a specific passage, but we're also uh, reading God's word together. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I had never made any kind of a connection before between the valley of the shadow of death that David talks about and the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel talks about. But last Sunday, I'm sitting here and I'm going, that's interesting. That's informative. That's, uh, that's helpful. And uh, <laughs> helpful's good. Object lessons are good. Josh, Josh is developing a relationship, uh, a, a, a um, reputation for, for object lessons, and, and last week, no object lesson. I was so disappointed. <laughs> I don't know. I, part of me is a little bit concerned. I'm worried he's going to show up in a couple weeks from now with a lion or something. I, I don't know, but it could be a little scary there. But anyway, let's take a few moments this morning to think about the context of the book of Daniel. We've been uh, learning a lot about judgment, reading a lot and hearing a lot about judgment as we've been reading through uh, for the last several months now the history of the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel. And um, maybe, you, maybe you, you find it a bit much. You know, I think, I think sometimes we find it, a, it's a lot. Like, you know, can we move on? You know, Jeremiah, uh, the weeping prophet, Ezekiel, you know, God requiring the blood of those who perish. 
from us if we don't tell them. There's, there's just a lot, of, there's a lot in there that's really hard going and stuff. And, you know, it's like maybe we could move on now. But, um, and we are moving on. But I think, you know, sometimes if we don't take the time to really process these things well and we try to process them quickly, I think that that's the time that we uh, maybe don't get it the way we should. And so if you're getting a little bit impatient with the content, um, maybe that's an indication, maybe just a check in your spirit from the Lord to get you just to slow down a little bit and think, do I really get it? Do I really get this idea that sin brings judgment? Because when we try to process that too quickly, it's like the person, you know, if you've ever had this, you'll, you know, somebody will do something, you know, to really hurt you. And, and it's like, and if you bring it, you know, you bring it to the tent, your, their attention, because that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what Jesus said. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. It's like, uh, can we just slow this train down just a little wee bit here? Do you realize, do you, are you sure you realize what you've done? Because we want to get past, right? We want to get past it. Let's move on to the good stuff. And, uh, you know, we all feel that way. And I guess it's normal, natural to feel that way. But I think that we need to a check in our spirits and, say, and ask God, you know, Lord, I want to get this. I don't want to be like so much of what I see around me in the lives of people where people just want to circumvent the hard stuff and just kind of pretend it away and, and not really take the time to, to deal with the harder realities of life when it comes to the truth about who we are and what our situation is and what God is prepared to do for us. And so I think that that's, um, that's really important. Second Chronicles 36 um, that's where we're going to start this morning. Just, again, a little bit of context, right? And verses 5, we're going to read four verses, okay? Verses 5 through 8, Second Chronicles 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God, Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, in the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. We are reading there about what is commonly referred to as the first wave of captivity. If you read on in Second Chronicles chapter 36, you will see that Jehoiakim was not the final king of, of uh, Judah. Uh, there were three, I think, that followed him. But, um, <clears throat> but we're, we're approaching the end, and, and we're seeing these, um, these waves of captivity. Uh, the consequences of the movements of our hearts away from God and the choices that we uh, make in regard to that are not sudden. They are more cumulative in nature. They're not vague, but they are not sudden. Um, today as we begin Daniel, 
Um, I hope that you will realize that the uh, books of the Bible are not arranged in chronological order. Okay, we're still talking about context. We're still thinking context. The books of the Bible, you have them all memorized. You could probably say them with me, right? We've been in the books of uh, uh, history, uh, the Kings and the Chronicles, Samuel's, uh, uh, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicle. Um, when we uh, move on from there in the, in the order of the books of the Bible, we're going to be uh, talking in the new year about Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. And then those books are followed by the, uh, what we call sometimes the poetical books, which also include the books of wisdom, Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and, and I forgot Job, right? Those poetical books. And uh, those books are written primarily in the history recorded in Kings and Chronicles. So that's where they belong, okay? Not entirely. Uh, how many of you listened to Boney M Christmas? Yay. Yay! I knew Laura was going to cheer for that. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. A Psalm 133, taken, written uh, after the captivity, and uh, and uh, so not not not. But but this the history, and and then you have uh, the uh, the books of poetry and wisdom, and then you have the major and uh, prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, where we are, and the minor prophets, all written during the, those, those times of history. Let's, uh, let's just uh, bring up a slide and have a look this morning. You've seen this slide before. It can be overwhelming. Uh, don't let it overwhelm you. It's not, it's not uh, that you need to get all of this information. It'd be great if you, anybody here has a photographic memory or an IQ of 180, you could get all of this information. Uh, what's most important here is the two timelines. After Solomon's son Rehoboam rebelled against the Lord, and actually it was the result of Solomon, right? And then you have the split in the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah, the, the tribe of David, and then the northern kingdom, the other tribes, mostly represented by uh, Ephraim, uh, Joseph, right? And then we, we learned about, uh, where's uh, Elisha and Elijah and Elisha? Yeah, Northern Kingdom right here, right? And then the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And Hezekiah, Northern Kingdom fell. But Hezekiah went to the Lord in the temple, and, um, and he uh, spread the letter out before the Lord. Remember that? And so, where, so as we go along here, where are we now? Oh, Manasseh, yeah, bad, 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 very bad. Josiah, good, very good, good, good. Remember him? Yeah, okay. Right here, Jehoahaz, then Jehoiakim we just read about, and Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. So two after Jehoiakim, I guess, not three. I was thinking Jehoahaz was before, but anyways. So uh, where's Daniel? You see him? Uh, I know he's here somewhere. Right there, there he is, yeah. Okay, see this? See, the lines are important. The time. This is a timeline, you understand? Um, the bottom part, by the way, is... Uh, the uh, kingdoms of the world, you have, uh, there's the Assyrians there and the Babylonians. Okay, so again, just, just don't, put that, don't take that away yet, Don. Sit there, let, let, it, let it just kind of become a mental image in your mind. Otherwise, the Bible will just be like a blur to you. All right? The context, the historical biblical context is so important 
All right. Were you paying attention when we read from 2 Chronicles 36? Let me just read it again for you quickly. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. <coughs> Second Chronicles 36, <coughs> excuse me, the first part of the chapter, first wave of captivity, and you have the cream of the Judean crop. All of the choicest treasures from the temple, the king himself, and the nobility of the land. Hauled off to Babylon. This is where the book of Daniel begins. Babylonians are now the world power, having conquered the Assyrians, and uh, they uh, assaulted Jerusalem and plundered the city in 605 B.C., carrying the very best off to Babylon. And Judah becomes a, a tribute state. And we read in Daniel chapter 1, the very last verse. Daniel chapter 1, the very last verse. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Those two verses, the first uh, verse or two in chapter 1, and the last verse in chapter 1 form bookends for the book of Daniel. Daniel, when he was a very young, they, authorities estimate probably around 14 years of age, him and his friends, as we read on here, uh, in Babylon, and Daniel would uh, never see Jerusalem again. Um, Let's read those verses, 5 to 7. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were ed to be educated for three years, and at the end of three, uh, that time they would stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called, and Azariah he called Abednego. Somebody said, uh, shake the bed, make the bed, and to bed we go. Right? You heard that? 
That's how you can remember those, April, wherever you are. I guess she's downstairs, but that's how some people remember them. Those are their uh, Babylonian names, or the Chaldean names, right? So, we talk about culture shock. We, um, have you, how many of you here have, uh, feel like you've really experienced culture shock at some point in your life? Hmm, a number of you, okay? But not most of you. Um, it couldn't get much more shocking than this, okay? Just try to picture this, okay? We're talking, I don't know how many miles it is from, uh, from Israel to Babylon. Uh, as a crow flies, it would be uh, probably several hundred miles. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, travel routes and so on, in those days, it would be the kind of trip that you, you would normally, uh, normally not make. Um, but it's, it's, a lo- it's a long ways, you know? The old saying, you're not in Kansas now, Dorothy. Uh, we're talking everything changed, absolutely everything. And uh, and this is where Daniel and his friends uh, find themselves. And uh, <coughs> they were the choice youth of the nation. And now here they are in Babylon um, being uh, trained and conditioned to serve in the king's uh, palace. Um, Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Um, Just a little bit of an aside here, but it's almost impossible to conceive that Daniel and his friends would not have been castrated. You can, uh, it doesn't say that there, but you can, you can study that on your own, but it's pretty likely, pretty likely, okay? Well, I won't go into that, nor go into the reasons for that. You can, you can search that out on your own. The only reason I mention it, the only reason I mention it is because the, the main point of the whole entire book of Daniel is that God is in control. And when we don't feel like anybody is in control, God is in control. And when our world seemingly falls apart, at that point in time, what we need more than anything is the kind of faith that Daniel and his friends had, a faith in a God who is always in control. And even when we don't understand his ways, that doesn't mean that his ways aren't good, and that we cannot put our faith and trust in him. We're going to talk more about that as, the, uh, as we go on here. We're going to see that, but, but that's, um, that's important. And God gave Daniel, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Um, lots of... Uh, talk here in this whole section about uh, uh, food. Uh, So what it says there is Daniel resolved and his friends resolved not to eat the king's food uh, and thereby defile themselves. And so they went and and talked to the the supervisor and the supervisor said, hey, my head is on the line here. If I go and present you to the king in uh, three, I think it was a three-month trial or whatever, um, and uh, and you, you're not 
doing really, really well. But that's that's the end of that's the end of me. And so, but it says there that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and, and he and he agreed to allow Daniel and his friends to try this. And so Daniel, it says that they didn't eat any of the king's meat, drink the king's wine, and they ate only vegetables. Where's Vicky McLe- uh, Vicky McDonald? There you are, Vicky. They ate only vegetables. They were on a strict vegetarian doc diet for, I think, three years. And uh, people have made all kinds of comments about that. We even have a, a Daniel plan diet that's come out of this. Let me just say, this has absolutely nothing to do with that. What this is that you're reading is a miracle, pure and simple. The end. It's one, it's the first of many miracles we see in the book of Daniel. It's not a prescription for how to eat. It's not a commercial for vegetarianism. What it is, is a a miracle of God to sustain his people and cause his people to prosper even under the harshest of circumstances. Daniel 1.17 says, To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God did that. The book of Daniel is not as much a book about Daniel as it is a book about God. In fact, that could be say, uh, said about all of the of the books of the Bible and all of the content of the Bible. And the text says in 1.8 that Daniel resolved, Daniel and his friends resolved, and that is an important observation, but don't make the mistake of thinking that that's the main point. The main point in this whole thing is not Daniel's resolve. The text says in verse 2 that God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and that God caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel in verse 9, and that God gave knowledge and understanding uh, to Daniel here in chapter 1, verse 17. And all three of those verses, the same Hebrew word is used. And it's a word that's translated uh, gave in Daniel chapter, uh, in verse uh, 1, or verse 2 rather, and uh, God gave... uh, uh, caused the official to show favor, uh, one nine, Daniel one nine, and God gave knowledge and understanding. Daniel one seventeen, same Hebrew word, and uh, it's it's an important word according to the theological dictionary of the Old Testament. Uh, the verb that's translated there, uh, netan, occurs close to two thousand times in the Old Testament scriptures, and the fundamental meaning is not to the fundamental meaning is not to give or make a gift. Rather, it is to extend the hand. That's the, the, uh, the uh, fundamental meaning of the term. To extend the hand in order to place an object at a specific place or to give it over to another person with or without compensation as a possession. So that you can understand why it's usually often translated to, to give. But the emphasis is on the placing of the hand. So, like this. God gave Joachim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave um, 
goodwill, favor, sympathy uh, in the eyes of the official to Daniel. And God gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel. It's, uh, by the way, if you know anybody that is named, who has the name Nathan or Nathaniel, that is this Hebrew word that we're talking about. And uh, it's significant because it's part of seeing the hand of God in your life. Of seeing the hand of God in Daniel's life. Seeing the hand of God in the lives of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those three Hebrew children who had all kinds of reason to question where God was in their lives. And that's why Daniel is writing here. He's writing to you and to me so that we can see this. And it's um, not so that we will read the book of Daniel and go, wow, that Daniel, he was really something, wasn't he? Those three Hebrew children, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were really something, weren't they? That's not the way this reads at all. It's not about them. It's about their God. And I can say that to you this morning. It's not about you. It's not about how much faith you have or don't have. It's the object of your faith. Where is your faith this morning? Is your faith in a God who is in control even when it doesn't seem like anyone is in control? Well, chapter 2 starts with a, a dream. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he woke uh, and tossed after tossing and turning all night, and he, uh, he was disturbed. really worked up about this. And so he called in his wise men and all his, his astrologers and the wise men of the land, and he said to them, I need you to, to tell me my dream and interpret it for me. And you, most of you know this story, but they all said, well, okay, tell us the dream. And he says, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream. Because if you can tell me the dream, then I know you'll be able to interpret it. To be honest with you, I don't think he could remember the dream. Just a hunch. Okay? Just a hunch I have. Um, but either way, <clears throat> they are like, what? And, and that, this is... This is uh, this is, you're being unreasonable here. They answered the king, um, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. There's not a man on earth. You're being completely unreasonable, Nebuchadnezzar. And his response is basically, hey, I'm the king. I'm allowed to be unreasonable. Or, to put it another way, I rule. 
what I say goes. And so this is how this is going to work. He says to them, basically, he said, I'm going to tell you one more time. I want you to tell me my dream, and I want you to interpret it for me. And if you don't, you're all going to die. Every single one of you. Well, the word goes out, right? In fact, the guards go out. They go out to round up all the wise men. Round up all the astrologers and all the wise men and all the advisors and all the counselors. And, of course, they come for Daniel and his friends, right? And uh, Daniel's response is a wise one. He gets the guys together and he says, hey, guys, we have, a, we have a problem here. And we need to pray. Prayer plays a very important role in the book of Daniel. I think you know that. I hope you know that. And you'll see it as we go through. And so here we are right at the front end of Daniel. And he says to his friends, we've got to pray. We've got to ask God to reveal to us the king's dream and the interpretation of the dream. Otherwise, we're all going to die along with everybody else. And so they go to prayer. Um, and God answered Daniel's prayer. And chapter 2, verse uh, 19 through 23 this is a really important part here. If you look at those words there, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, it says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Now mark his words here, okay? These are important. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God and my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. When you read those words, hopefully we will appreciate the, this fact that this is all about God. It's not about Daniel. It's not about his friends. And it's not about you or me. It is about him. Verses 24 through 28. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said to him, Thus, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And he said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, listen, take a look. No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. The astrologers in verse 10 of chapter 2 said, there's not a man on earth that can do this. Daniel says, there is a God in heaven. Daniel tells the king his dream. I hope you read through there or have read through there, but this is, this is King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I, I don't know what kind of dreams you have. Do you have crazy dreams? My dreams are crazy. Unreal. Right? Stuff happens in dreams that doesn't happen in real life, right? So it's like supernatural stuff, right? <coughs> this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel says. He says, you, this is, you, you dreamt, and in your dream you saw a giant image. And it was scary. Text, he saw it say it was frightening. And then he goes on to describe this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And as he describes the image, it becomes very apparent very readily as you read through that it's the image of a, a person or a, a man, if you will. Not, not just, you know, a person, but a, a great, big, giant image of, of a man. And it has a golden head. And it has uh, a chest and arms of silver. And it has a, a, a middle and thighs of, of bronze. And it has legs of iron and feet, a mixture of iron and clay. Some of you have been around church for years and years and years. You, you've, you've, heard, you've heard this expanded, expounded on because, it, um, you know, just because you have, I guess. <laughs> Excuse me. But this is this, this big, scary image that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw that Daniel uh, brings to his, his mind. And um, then um, with this visual image uh, revisited, Daniel goes right immediately. Well, let me just read. Let's read uh, verses 34 and 35. Um, let me just back up a little bit here. Yeah. 34 and 35. Um, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Use your imagination. Just, just imagine you're having this, this wild and crazy dream, and there's this great, big, scary image. And then all of a sudden, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, is this stone that is cut out without human hands. Interesting. Comes and, and barrels down through and hits the image and smashes it, in pieces so small that it becomes like a fine dust, and then the wind blows it all away, and there's nothing. I'm not sure which part of the dream was the most frightening for Nebuchadnezzar, but uh, that would be pretty, uh, that would really leave you scratching your head and 
and and and wondering what what does this all mean, right? So Daniel tells him that's 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 the dream that that he, you had, and uh, and then he moves right into the interpretation, verses thirty six to thirty eight. This was the dream. It says in verse thirty six. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the, of the heavens, making you to rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Daniel goes on then to explain how the other parts of this image represent kingdoms that would follow uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and provides uh, a kind of a panoramic view of, of uh, world history going forward from the time of the nation of Babylon. And uh, this vision and interpretation placed here at the front end of the book of Daniel becomes almost like a key to all the interpretive aspects of the book of Daniel. If you study the book of Daniel, I'm uh, excited to uh, what, what, see what all Josh is going to do with this as we move through the book. Um, I think next week we're... It's two weeks now we're in, the book of, we're in, um, we're in uh, Daniel in the lion's den. But I think it's the 29th of December. You're going to explain all the prophetic sections of the book of Daniel, I believe. Uh, chapters uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? But, Josh, this, this, this vision and this interpretation, is, is I, I think, is really key here because I think it's almost like a, a template. It's like, remember when Jesus talked about the, the parable of the sower and the people were saying, I don't get it. And, he said, and his disciples were saying, we don't get it. And Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? And a lot of biblical scholars believe that the, the parable of the sower is like a template, uh, a key to understanding how parables work. And I think, I think in the book of Daniel, I think with this vision and the interpretation of this vision that God's giving to, uh, to, to Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, via Daniel, is, is, it's, it's like that. And all of the other... Uh, prophetic sections of Daniel fit into this, but 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 don't get lost in in the um, in the details there, because um, what what is it really all about? The vision that Daniel, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar received in his dream and that Daniel interpreted. What is it all about? It's about the kingdoms of men. Babylon was a mighty mighty kingdom. <clears throat> followed by the Medes and the Persians, followed by Alexander the Great, followed by the Roman Empire and, and what we sometimes refer to as the revised Roman Empire. And God is laying out for uh, us and for, for Nebuchadnezzar here a um, sort of a boilerplate for interpreting uh, world history. But what is it all about? The kingdoms of men, but not just the kingdoms of men. There's another part of the dream. You have this giant uh, figure 
representing the kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdoms that would follow, but the dream doesn't stop there, right? The next part of the dream is really, really important. There's this stone cut out without hands, cut out of a mountain without hands. What, what, what a strange way to describe that. Why, why, would, why, would, why would God, why would Daniel use that kind of terminology, cut out without hands? Well, see, when describing it that way, it cuts man out of the picture. Because the kingdoms of this earth are all about us, right? Our, our abilities, our power, our desires, um, what we think we can do. And to be honest with you, if I could put it in one word, it would be the word pride. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar felt when, when, when Daniel said to, to him, you know, you, O king, you're, you, you, you are the head of gold. I don't even know whether Nebuchadnezzar heard anything after that, to be honest with you. Because the next thing he does is he runs out and builds this great big image. Out of all of the gold. <laughs> That's in chapter 3. But before we uh, go there, look at uh, verses 44 and 45 of chapter 2. And in the days of these, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces from uh, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has... Um, made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Cut out from a mountain without human hands. You know, gold, silver, bronze, iron, elements of the earth. What do they represent? Kingdoms, yes. Man. Man at his best, man at his worst. You know, whether we're talking gold or silver or clay, end of the day, it really doesn't matter because the kingdom of God supersedes them all. And King Nebuchadnezzar or you or I, at our very best without God, at our very best without God, are like chaff in the wind. But God is building a kingdom. He's building a kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom. I mentioned pride, you know. The culture we live in, it, it's amazing to me how, how, how proud we are. I'm generalizing here, but how proud we are of our accomplishments and what we think we know. It's like there, if there's any quality that seems to consistently reveal itself in all of the, of the news reports we hear and in all of the cultural diatribes we are exposed to, it has to be this idea of pride. And we sometimes talk about different generations. We talk about boomers and busters and millennials and Generation X and so on. And 
It doesn't really matter what titles we put on these things. But I tell you, when we start to think that we're any better than our fathers, our forefathers, that we're the only ones that have it figured out and that nobody before 1999 knew anything. It's, we're in trouble. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, the king, he promoted Daniel. Man, he set him up, made him, put him in charge of all the wise men uh, of, of, um, of Babylon. And that reminds me of Joseph, right, in the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, Genesis, same kind of thing. So King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, chapter 3, verse 1, of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and breadth, 6 cubits, that's about 90 feet high. And he set up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. And uh, that word, set it up, that phrase, set it up, he set it up, occurs in verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 18. It's stated that way to make the point. This was the work of Nebuchadnezzar's hands. He set it up. He took it, made it, put it out there, and commanded everybody to bow down and, uh, and worship this thing that he had made. And whenever the Bible talks about idolatry, whenever the prophets talk about idolatry, you can read through the prophets a lot of the material we've been reading in uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on. This idea that how, how absurd it would be that we worship something that our hands have made. That we would worship the work of our own hands. And that's certainly the idea here. As the word set it up, set it up, set it up um, occurs over and over again. And in doing so, what are we doing really? We are exalting our own selves. Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to exalt himself. That was what he was really all about. And please understand, if when we talk about false worship and when we talk about idolatry, it's not just it's not just the worshiping of idols. It's everything that goes with worshiping a false god. Everything that goes with that, because the one true God is pure and holy and just and righteous and good. And I don't, I don't know if you, if you figured this out yet or not. I, I hope you have, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is true, that we become like what we worship, or we become like the one we worship. And so it's very important that we get this right. And you might be thinking that this, this whole thing, you know, is, uh, is kind of... Uh, Ridiculous, you know, that people would bow down and worship this this thing. And, and that's what he did. He called everybody to bow down when they heard all the musical instruments. They were to bow down and to, and to worship. And uh, you might think that's kind of silly. But, you know, I, when I think about uh, the pride uh, of, all, of all of this, and the pride of our hearts, I, I think this happens every single day. I think we... And I'm generalizing here when I say we. I don't mean you necessarily or you and I, but we as a culture, we worship the image every day. The image that we set up with our own hands, to exalt our own selves. 
every day. Daniel chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 18 to 18. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, God, the God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, everybody fell down to worship the gods, and the Hebrew children said, no. They were grown men by now, of course, but they said, no, we're not going to bow. And we're meant to see the contrast here. Do you see the contrast? We've just read hundreds of years of history of idolatry. Hundreds of years, book after book, of the people of Israel uh, filling the land of Israel with idols. And now here they are, they've, they've lost everything, and here they are in the foreign land, and here are these young men, and they're threatened with death of a horrible kind. And they, their response is, we will not bow. And they said, our God's able to deliver us. And even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will not bow. And it's not that they weren't willing to humble themselves. Right? That's not what they're saying. We will not worship your gods. We will not worship this false god that you have set up. And we marvel at their faith. But when we marvel at their faith, we do service to their faith. Because it wasn't their faith. It was their faith in the one true God. Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. After King Nebuchadnezzar had his men throw them into the fiery furnace, the king was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to him, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The fourth man. He he didn't know. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. I mean, what do you what do you what do you know? Like, what do you what do you know? What do you what do you do? What do you think? What do you what do you say? You know, sometimes we open our mouths and these words come out, and afterwards we go, "Why? Why did I say that?" You know, he, he has no context for this. He has no context to understand what's going on. So he makes a statement, which is kind of just kind of whatever. It's the best he can come up with. The appearance of the fourth is like a son of a son of the gods. What's that look like? He doesn't know. He's never seen anything like this before, ever. But you and I know. We know who the fourth man is. It's the stone cut out without hands. It's the virgin birth of Christ. what God 
does. Not what we can do. Not about us. It's about him. I think sometimes a lot of our faith is really just faith in ourselves because we don't understand what it means to have faith. We think of it sometimes in terms of the world is like, you know, to have this kind of personal self-confidence. That's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. God's kingdom is everlasting. It supersedes them all. Men will come and men will go. But the one who walks through fire, he's the one you need to know. Coming up to Christmas, the incarnation. When God came, the stone cut out without human hands. So his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Do you know him? Uh, why don't you stand and I'm going to have a, a drink of water and pray, um, pray with you. Lord in heaven, I thank you for these men and women here today and for the opportunity that you've given us just to gather in your name to sing your praise and to read your word together. Lord, help us to take from your word what you have for us today. We humble ourselves before you, Lord. We lift up and exalt the mighty name of Jesus here today. We pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified. We recognize you, Lord Jesus, as the Son of God who came to do what we could never do, to save us, to save us from our sin and to be our King and our Lord and our Savior forever. Lord, help us to follow you Lord Jesus, help us to follow you and help us to live for you and help us to have no other gods before you. To put all our faith and all of our trust in you and to know that even when it seems like nothing is in control, Lord, that you are always in control of all things. And even when we don't understand it, you are at work and you are working out our salvation. Lord, give us eyes to see these things and hearts to respond and and worship you as our Savior and our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.